0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Journey. Now today, we're very excited to welcome Gary Kernin on the show. Gary is the current head women's soccer coach at Cal State Bakersfield, and he's the former assistant women's soccer coach at the University of Cincinnati and Wingate University. Gary holds a UEFA A license and a premier diploma from the NSCAA. He is also the author of two excellent books, one which is titled The Modern Soccer Coach and the most recent one entitled the modern soccer coach position-specific training. Gary, how are you doing today? Good,
1: thanks, Paul. How are you?
0: I'm excellent, thank you. So, we've taken a bit of a break on the website, and you're our first guest back. I'm very excited to have you on. I think, I think a lot of people, or a decent amount of people, know who you are. I think it's fair to say, especially from your books, your contributions. Um, but the first question is, why did you become a coach? Um, it's a good question. I became a coach because I
1: wanted to I didn't really know what I was doing I had originally planned when I was finishing my undergrad at Wingate I had planned to do um, a degree and I I did a degree in marketing. and I had planned really to use soccer when I played there as a an experience and to kind of move on to the next stage of my life so um, I had planned to do uh, we'll go into corporate America basically, and and climb the ladder and make millions of dollars and and be really really successful. And then, uh, I think the year before my senior year, I did a, I did a summer where I, I kind of took a bit of time and and went to, uh, done a sales training and, and went to sell books door to door, and it uh fell flat on my face and uh, realized that maybe corporate America isn't the right fit for me. So and then. Um, I kind of needed a bit of time, so the coach at Wingate uh, and the men's side, Gary Hamill, offered me a chance to stay on as a grad assistant, and I did it just to fill some time. And and then in doing that, there um, I kind of started my coach education and and saw a different side of coaching. And I always I always had a passion for the game, but I never saw coaching. I actually did a coaching, I did my badges when I was. Eighteen, seventeen. Before I came out to the states, but I just looked upon coaching as X's and O's. And then once I, once I started seeing the, I suppose the, the human side of it, and and the, um, the sports science side, and what the effects of training do does, and the mindset side. And that was when I, I became hooked on it, and and I realized that uh, you know, this was something that I wanted to pursue.
0: So was it maybe when you had that little bit of time selling door to door, but what was the earliest memory of when you knew that coaching would be a career for you? My
1: earliest memory was, was, um, I mean, I think I always the, the thing that shaped it for me was actually reading, uh, someone gave me a copy of wooden, um, the book, like life lessons from John wooden, um, when I was coming over to do my, uh, course, my a license in Ireland. um, and I, once I started reading it, I, I just saw a different side. And I saw, um, I always took, when I was a player, I always took players for what they were. You know, every, every dressing room or every locker room has the same type of personalities, whether, whether that's the way you, they're recruited or whether that's the way they're shaped or whether that's the way they naturally fall into place. You know, you've got your, your jokers and your talented players and your workers. And, and I always just thought that players were, you couldn't really change who people were, but then once, once I read that, once I started studying, um, and got more exposed to the the psychological side of it, this is is that's when I became hooked, and that's when I became, you know, fascinated by, by what changes in mindset could do for, for changes in performance. And then I was fortunate enough that I worked at a level uh, as an assistant at Division Two school, where the head coach gave me an opportunity to try things out, and uh, once I started doing that. Uh, I then, yeah, I then became pretty much set on, on the path
0: that I wanted to follow. When you were, so you talk about how, and I'm assuming you're talking about Wingate, when you were at Wingate trying those things out, what were some of the things that, what were some lessons that you learned coaching, trying things with the team that you've taken on board, and what were some lessons that you learned that you tried and they just didn't work at all, and you said, you know what, it's good I tried it now because I'll never do that again. <laughs> I mean that's that's the
1: that's what I feel my journey of coaching is. I mean that's what you know I feel coaching is as well. You know I've I mean you'd be here all day if I told you what didn't work. I mean I have had things even now. I you know I talk to to Clifton and the staff here about. I like I look back in an honor or at horror of what what I tried and what like and in at the time I felt you know it was in the best interest of of what I was trying to do and the team and all that there. And, and, and just, I suppose, looking back and with experience, you're like, oh, why did I do that? And, um, but I think that's where you make your biggest jump as coaches is, is not actually, you know, is the, the safety zone doesn't really provide growth. It provides, um, I mean, you know what's, what's going to keep players the same. What keeps players the same is doing what they've done for hundreds of times every session before, um, what gets players to change and what gets people to change is is really jolting them out of their comfort zone. And, and what worked really well was when I probably, um, when I probably just drew them enough out of their comfort zone. And what worked badly, uh, what what didn't work, uh, was when I when I pushed too much and when, uh, the relationships weren't set strong enough and when I was just probably a little bit impatient with it. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm probably an ideas person and and I, I, I always, you know, I get energized by new stuff and I get energized by trying new things. And, um, I probably, what draws me back probably is that, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it's too much at once, or maybe it's, uh, it's a little bit too, um, too ambitious at the time. and, And that's probably where I looked at, at Wingate, um, you know, I, I, I probably pushed a little too far at times, um,
0: looking back. What do you think is off the field? How, how important do you think establishing a team culture is? And what are some things that you've come in and instituted with Bakersfield currently, especially when you took over the head position? What were some things you do to improve the team culture or maybe to to institute your own kind of culture that you want your teams to embody if that makes sense yeah
1: i mean culture's huge and it's you know it's a real buzzword and in, and in, in sports at the minute and especially college athletics you know everyone's everyone's looking for that culture and everyone's trying to set that culture and you know i i think you can't have a culture unless you know you can't have inconsistencies in your culture you can't you know, you can't say that we're gonna do things the right way and then go out and, and, and have poor training sessions. You can't say that you're gonna be competitive and then allow your players to slack off in any aspect of it. So I think culture is like what you stand for the whole way across the board. Um I suppose the big the, the most important thing in a college or, or where we're where we're very, very fortunate is that you're you can set it. A, everywhere because you have you know you've got access to their academics so you can set challenges there that can be part of your culture um you can set challenges through their um fitness and their weights room so there's another side of of um building that culture obviously the training and the soccer side and then you've got the the social side and that social side is community service and that's being a good person so uh what what I think what we try to do here is we try to link them all together. So you can't have a good person who doesn't actually take their academics seriously, because if you're going to be a good person, that's that you give 110% for everything. And that then goes in the weights room, whether you're doing a stretch or whether you're maxing out on whatever you need to do, um, you know, you have to see the connection between one or the other. So culture is very, very important. And, and it's probably, you know, you know, it's provided the biggest jump forward in us is that, in this program here over the past 12 months is that we've got people who, who are not just college soccer players. They are good students. And, and I think on the college side, you look anywhere where there is a strong culture and that culture is probably embedded within their academics, especially in the woman's side. And, you know, and that's something that I learned from, you know, my time at Cincinnati with, with, with Neil, I was fortunate at Wingate. We were fortunate to have academically bright kids, uh, we didn't have to worry too much about the academics. Um, at Cincinnati, uh, you know, it's a good academic institution, but uh, Neil Stafford was was pretty big on on making it like you had to kill it in the classroom. Uh, and I saw a lot of growth in people through that there because they were being challenged. And, you know, it, a lot of life's about habits and, and something that you provide in academics, you can take into your soccer Um and now soccer's becoming more of a thinking man's game or it's becoming more decision making and it's becoming more mental strength and you know we're fortunate that we can we can i think provide growth or or provide challenges in those areas that can help soccer players or can help players become better athletes
0: when we're talking about culture and you don't have to mention any school names but have you ever been challenged or has the staff that you've worked with ever been challenged by a player that Just refuses to buy into the culture because there's certain things you can do but to a certain extent you can't kick the person out of school you can maybe get them off the team but it's not like you see at the professional level where you can just sell someone or release them have you had that challenge where a player just wouldn't buy in and if so what was your how did you deal with that challenge yeah I mean uh, you know I first
1: got here we've we've faced a lot of resistance and uh, you know, you're not facing resistance, Paul, from like a, a, in a, I don't think in the women's game at Division One, you're not facing resistance from kids coming in and saying, I don't want to do this. You know, so you're asking them to, uh, what, what, you, what you do whenever you take over a new team and you try to establish a culture, what you're, to, what you're basically asking the kids to do is you're asking them to work harder than they've ever worked before with standards that have probably never been set before uh, that are higher. Um, that you're not going to pat on the back and that you haven't established a relationship enough with these players. So technically, these players don't trust you. So you're saying, right, do this, do this, do this. And they're saying, all right, well, I don't know what you're about. And, you know, they're not interested in your background. They're not interested in your CV and they're not interested in your coaching qualifications. They're only interested in whether um, you're in the best interest of them. So you're you're not getting resistance from, I don't think you know what you're talking about. You're getting resistance from. Um, this is out of not within my habits. Like my, I'm, I'm habit, I'm habitually driven to push myself uh, to a certain threshold, and that's been good enough. So, what we found here was we could, you know, you get players to average and good, no problem at all. But when you start saying, "All right, well here the bars," instead of a B grade, the bars an A grade. And that A is is in every aspect. Well, that's when you get players that will say, I can't do it. You know, I can't do that there. That's too high, but I'm still working hard enough. And then as a coach, you've got to decide whether you're going to accept that level of working hard or whether you're going to say, no, that's not actually good enough for our program. Um, And that's where, you know, that's where I I think most coaches find themselves. And, And if you're fortunate enough that you can better bring a better caliber of player in, then you can say, all right, well, thanks very much we're going to go with this here. Um, or if you can't bring, you know, a better caliber player in, then you're stuck with that player. Um, so I think that's what, you know, in moving a culture, you can't have bad players and, and a great culture. You need good players as well, but you need players who are open to new ideas. Um, I think coaching at the minute is becoming, you know, the biggest challenge is time. You know, every, every Premier League coach, first thing they want is, want is time because, that's what they're trying to do with that time. They're trying to build that relationship and build that trust, and it takes, it takes uh, time. But you know, none of us have that there, so uh, that I think that's why the turnover is great, and that's why you have to be willing to show players the door because if, um, if you keep players in who don't buy into your culture, it make it weakens your culture rather than strengthen it, no matter how good it is everywhere else.
0: Yeah, I mean, spot on. That now I want to stick with sticking with this topic before we move to a new one. Could you give us some tangible examples of how you instill the culture that you want to see in your team on the training field itself? So things that you've done or things that you've you've done in the past where you are instituting the culture you want, especially with a new team, by your actions or the training sessions or any of those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I try to get a level of sta- first thing I do is establish a standard, and I, I'm vocal about it, and I'm I'm clear about it, and say this is how you know. I- I want. Uh, I try. And I try to keep clarity in terms of those standards. So I don't. I'm a. I'm a pretty laid back person. I'm a, You know, I enjoy having a laugh. I enjoy joking around. But you know, once that whistle goes, or once it turns seven thirty on a on a week morning, that's where you know it's work. It's and I, and I don't compre- compromise on that. There. I, you know, I I won't have a fun day uh, if if it's a light session. One of my assistants can take it. Um, and and they're very very good on doing it as well. They're they're probably more adaptable than I am. Um, as a head coach, uh, you know, I try to be one way, uh, and I try to then keep a consistency with that. So when that whistle goes, then the players come in. When I'm working with them, I want them to know that it's business, um, and then I want it, I want you know I I I'm clear on what I define as that business and that business is maxing out everything we're doing so you know i don't have a slow warm-up i don't do stretching i don't that's to done on their own time whenever i have them uh i i demand a certain level and if they don't get to that level then i you know i can be i can be i can be tough i can be difficult um and i try to push them to that there and and that's you know that's putting that pressure on them every day um, the feedback is then through you know what we've tried to do here is through the sports science and through we, we've tried to remove opinion here as much as possible because you know you' you're not working hard enough is, is not really it doesn't really impact players but if you show them you know measurements on, heart rate monitors or measurements on intensity or measurements on you know video and and, and that's that hits players i think more than uh, you know the grumpy man saying that you're not working hard enough so what what we're trying to do is is like provide clear instructions of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable um and and doing that there again if if players know what's expected of them and they know, again, I'm, I'm big on habit. You know, I think that if you go in every day and some days a fun day and some days a serious day, then some of the players will not read that the correct way. Um, But I'm pretty consistent in, in, in the way I work. Um, And like I said, if, if I want to work a different way and I want to level lower the intensity, then I'm not the coach for that. And I've got a good enough staff that can, that can provide that without me micromanaging it.
0: I think that's an interesting point because I think from, from a psychological perspective it almost offers a trigger where if they see you running the session they know what they're about to get if they see an assistant maybe to a certain extent if they see the assistant coach running it they might understand what kind of session is coming at them um, but moving aside from culture as a coach and especially in your position now where you're always constantly looking for players constantly trying to add players to your team and, and players that fit your culture. What are the things that you look for in a player, both from a technical standpoint, tactical, psychosocial, from a complete standpoint, what are you looking for in a player to play at a high college level? Um, I mean, I don't
1: have a, you know, I'm not someone that has a, sits and watches a player for for 10 games and has five charts and evaluates them on a 10 scale on every one. You know, I'm not that guy and, and uh, you know, I look at athleticism, to be honest, for for starters. I'm I'm big on pace. I'm big on speed. I think I think you need legs to win games. I think you need legs to stay in games. I think you need legs over a, you know, over the course of our season. So, uh, you know, I don't hide the fact that I know on Twitter everyone, you know, there's the Shabbies of this world and there's the the David is in this world and there's small technical players. Um, you know, uh, we play a we're trying to play a model play here that that does involve possession that does involve decision making but we cannot play the the type of game that we want to play without athletes and i don't i don't disguise that fact so i you know the first thing i look for is is that player capable of of sustaining a, a type of um a type of play for a model of play for 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 the x amount of minutes that we would need them to so the, the physical is probably the first the technical side is obviously the second and it's not just you know I'm not just a passer of a ball, but then I look more position specific what I'm looking for in a in a center forward and what we need in a central midfielder and what we need in a center back. And and for a lot of those positions, well for every position there is a technical component. Um and then you know the difficult part is finding out the person is finding out the mentality and what we try to do for that is is obviously get some feedback on coaches and people that have worked with them and and also uh you know is also looking at their grades and and what kind of standards they have and what kind of family background they have and if they're being pushed and challenged um but we're not getting you know for the majority of our players they're not 10 out of 10 in every area um and and probably in every you know every level of college nobody's getting 10 out of 10 um and if they are they're they're very very fortunate and our players are missing something somewhere um and and that somewhere you know Nine times out of 10, it's in the technique side. Um, and we're, you know, we feel it with our training. We can catch up there. But it's very, 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 very hard to catch up on someone who, you know, isn't in shape or someone who doesn't really commit themselves to the physical side. And, you know, it is a physical game and and, and it is an athletic game. And, and, you know, I think you're kidding yourself if you think you can be successful at, at soccer, uh, at, in especially in the U.S. without having, um, you know, athletes.
0: I think it's an interesting point because what you know, obviously, they're and I know exactly what we're talking about when people mention Javi or NES or those players. But I think the the point is to be made that they're also world class athletes as well. You know, they might not be able to do a three hundred pound uh, chest press, but they're world class athletes in the sense of endurance, in the sense of their VO two uh, capacity, things like that. But I, I I like what I like how you're explaining your point. Have you ever compromised on a player where, <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll see what kind of answers we can get from this, but have you ever compromised on a player who it could have been, they're just technically so gifted, but like you just said, maybe they're not really at the same pace, or maybe they are athletically gifted, technically gifted, but you know what, the feedback you're getting from coaches, the feedback you're getting from maybe even people, other people who know the player is saying, stay away.
1: Oh, like that's why I'm laughing because, like, I compromise every every week. I feel or every uh, definitely every recruiting class, and uh, I I I would say I fall under the same impress or same trap. I don't know trap's might be a harsh word, or uh, we get seduced by talent as coaches. You know, we get seduced by a player with ability, and 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 I'm no different. And you see an X factor, and we think, wow. Um, and then you might see a behavior or you might see an attitude or you might see a, or hear about a history of that program or a player. And you think I'm going to be the coach that breaks through um, because, at, you know, at the same time, you know, if a player is 10 out of 10 in all the aspects, uh, they, they may not be looking at your program. We're all we're all at different levels. Um, so that player then who has something magic, you know, and, and maybe hasn't fulfilled that potential you're that person who's who thinks yeah I can do that there and that's where you know I, it, again the top top managers are doing it as well like that's what um everyone takes a chance uh, Louis Van Gaal took a chance on on um uh what's his name I uh, went to Paris Saint-Germain the uh the uh, Di Maria you know and, and and none of us can break through. You know, a player typically is is what they are, but it's whether they can suit your culture is strong enough to suit that player. So I've had players who who mentally, you know, not every one of our players is mentally strong and able to deal with that. There, um, but what we t- what we compromise we compromise on certain levels, but only if that player is 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 willing to improve. I suppose is is that's what our that's what our difference is, and if that player is willing to improve. Usually, I do okay with them, um, and we, you know, any any level of growth can be celebrated. But if the player is not willing to improve, and if they have a bit of a closed mindset, and you know they are what they are. Then you know, over a period of one to two years, usually the the patience wears a little thin, and you, you've probably got that player as far as you're going to get them, and maybe at that stage, it's time for them to
0: move on. What do you think? is the biggest misconception within college soccer um and you can do college soccer in general women's college soccer but what do you think is the biggest misconception for maybe coaches fans people who discuss the sport anything
1: you know i I just i mean obviously I'm, i'm pretty active on twitter and you know and i read i read a lot of feedback of people who watch the games and you know, and, and I think the biggest criticism of it is the, is the technical side of it, is the, you know, players that should be able to, to perform certain functions don't perform certain functions. Teams that are supposed to perform uh, certain patterns or certain things that you would take for granted. You know, at the end of the day, these players are not professional players. You know, so if you watch an MLS game, uh, you will see you know you could rip it apart you know you watch a premiership game you could rip it apart and you can see some I mean we were we were looking at at, at some of the Arsenal defending uh, on Sunday yesterday in the office <laughs> and it was like we were and it was anyways with the it's like Richie Grant was in here and you're like if, if our defenders defended like that you know you would you would look for a new home for them and uh, but at the same time we 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 kind of view it as a I suppose our our culture in the US. Some of our coaches, just the fact that it's on TV, we we view it as a oh we can rip it apart. But these aren't professional players here, Paul and and Bar. Maybe the top hundred teams in Division One women's soccer. They're not. Their goal is not to play professionally or play for the US national team. Their goal is to come here, have a great experience. Uh, get a degree and 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 use soccer as a vehicle to to get that challenge and to get that exposure and to have a great yeah to have a great experience so um the te- you know the technical side of it is every player here is is trying to do the right things but they're coming from different backgrounds and, and you've got a three-month season where it's you know if you put put the Premier division into a three-month season and and try to show me what quality is like in a Barcelona would probably play a different style of play. Well, or or maybe they wouldn't. They would be the only team that wouldn't. Everyone else would. Um, so I, it doesn't bother me. But it it's like, you know, I, I don't get I don't get annoyed about it. But I do feel that that's yeah. I, I do feel that um, there we are limited here with with a lot of different things. The hours we have. The t- the the background of the players. Um, everyone here is is trying to do certain things, but. You know, just because a a team isn't playing possession soccer does not mean that, you know, everyone's jobs on the line here as well. So we're not going to try and play something that we can't do. Um, I didn't I didn't play possession soccer in Division Two uh, because I didn't have to uh, because you could go from front to back pretty quickly. But I have to play it here because I'm in California and that's where everyone else does. So um, you know, you, you have to adapt in the world that you're the world that you live in. Um, and, but you cannot, you can't make something that's not there appear. Um, but I think our players at college do a great job and I think the coaches do a great job. Could it be better? Absolutely. Uh, but it can be better, you know, across the board as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because I'll be the first to throw myself under the bus. I criticize a decent bit, but I can appreciate your viewpoint and, um, when you're talking about the college game, and I'm curious your opinions on this, I think it's a little different for women's professional soccer compared to men's professional soccer with possibly just the fact that maybe the academy setup isn't as profound on the women's side as it is for the men's side. Do you think, or what do you think the three-month season does for development, either for a, a men's college soccer player or a women's college soccer player who are interested in playing professionally, are they better suited to come to university or are they better suited to try their luck abroad?
1: Oh, I would be a big, I mean this is a, an argument we have with the men's staff all the time and I, I believe the best, you know if you want to be a soccer player and you want to be a professional I think there's two aspects here that that would point towards jumping on a plane and I think first of all is mental strength and I think we we, we don't there's not enough challenges mentally in the club game and the academy system over here to, to get a player to the level that it's going to take to become a, a world class performer or even just an elite performer. Just or even an elite performer who can who can maintain a professional career over fifteen years. Um, you're not getting that in the U.S. at the minute, and I also think then from a, you know the time and and the practice time that you're having. And, you know, I think to become a player, I think you need two things. I think you need development, which is training and you need experience, which is games. You get the development in college. uh, No problem about that. You're getting training, but you're not getting enough games. You're only getting 25 games a year. So, you know, there's players in the academy system in England who maybe aren't getting the training, but are getting the games. And that experience is going to, you know, like, you know, yourself experience is the key of a lot of things in life and 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 mental strength is probably the other key. So our players I would, you know, if, if a player is saying that I have to be a professional soccer player, I'm not worried about a degree. Then by all means go somewhere where a professional soccer player is uh, is going to be developed rather than, you know, an, a one out of 25 or five out of 25, which would probably be a, a you know a big conveyor belt for a college program would be providing maybe five to ten professional players, but that's still not the goal of, of college, I don't believe.
0: I believe it's the goal of a pro club. Agreed on that. Now, do you think there is still a difference, though, with regards to men's and women's, because I think maybe you have more... What's the word I'm looking for? I think there, it's easier. It's more accessible for younger boys to play in professional academies at least in the United States, and it is for women. So do you still think that, you know, will college women's college soccer be the pathway to development for quite a while, or do you see that changing slowly as it's starting to slowly change with the MLS and other professional teams and setups? You're talking
1: specifically about the women's side? Yeah. Well, the women's side, yeah. I mean, because the way I look at it, Paul, is the comparison, you know, throughout the world. So here we can still develop... You know, if a player is in, in Europe and they're saying, all right, I want to play for my country and I want to be a professional soccer player, I think it's in the best interest of someone in the UK or someone in, you know, Europe, bar a professional league, is to come over here and to spend four years. And because of the physical side, you're going to become a better athlete. You're going to play with, with good players. Um, I think from a woman's side, yeah, you can, you can do it because that full-time woman's professional experience is not really developed or I suppose it's not the aim of a lot of countries, you know, England are still, you know, in the, in the early stages of their pro, pro league. Um, so, but on the other side of that there, then on the men's side, it's completely different because every country has a professional league and every country develops players. But, you know, I, I think the model for professionalism in, in the woman's side, yeah, I still think it's, you know, like similar to basketball and similar to football. I think the, 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 college, the college level does play a role because you're getting that experience um, and, and you're still getting that level of competition. And, and if you go to, you know, you go to the, most of you know, Division One games, there's a pretty good level of competition. There's no one, you know, the top, there's not a disparity between top to bottom in the top hundred teams is pretty pretty competitive, so there's nobody who's who's running away with it every year. Um, like maybe I just think women's basketball. I mean, UConn have have won it consistently for so there's a there's a bit of a gap there, but there's not in women's soccer.
0: I want to change track a little bit. You've already, as a college coach, you've already said that you know the best place for a, a person who's well, the best place for a, a man who says I want to I want to play professionally is to not play in college. So being a bit more controversial, do you mind answering some other controversial topics? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So here's an interesting one that I always cringe a little bit when I hear, but could you elaborate on what you think this means to you? Let the game be the teacher.
1: Let the game be the teacher, yeah. Um, You could take it two ways. I think you could I mean, obviously, there's there's a whole side to it, probably, that I would imagine where you're coming at is like, people say that you just let the kid play and they'll eventually get it. Um, I don't actually agree with that because if that's the case, then, you know, uh, here's what I'll say: people think that Barcelona develop these players that they just are, are play matches every day and they go and and they perform. And Lionel Messi did not is born with a talent. But I don't think he was. I think, you know, Barcelona paid an arm and a leg to get him out of Argentina and the slums for a reason, you know. So so Lionel Messi has been heavily coached, as has Iniesta, Xavi, as is every player in that academy. Um. Now, I, I do think that you need games and I do think that there's a certain time that a coach needs to step back and let their kids play, especially if you want to develop decision makers. And that's that's a challenge as a coach because we're all control freaks to a certain extent, um, some higher than others. And, and you know, developing players and letting players stand on their own two feet and letting players, giving them trust to go and play a certain way, involves a coach standing back at times. Um, and we all struggle with that. Um, but I think standing back completely and letting the players arrive and letting them play a game is uh, is
0: not coaching. You're just supervising. I mean, you're, I think that's – I think what you're – and your point is right. I think the truth is all – usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I think a lot now because there's this – whenever there's one extreme, we usually combat it with another extreme. Absolutely. So some people have gotten mad with overcoaching, and so they said, well, let them play. They'll figure it out. But a lot of times I see a session where a kid is making the same mistake 20 times over 20 minutes, and he's not going to figure it out. huh you can, you can develop a game or an activity to try and provoke the answer, but if the kid doesn't understand and you're not coaching him, I mean, if our, if our job title was facilitator, that might be a bit different, uh-huh. but that's not what our title is. When you hear that, well, here's another question. This came out recently, um, and especially with you at the college level, at a relatively high level of play, I'm curious your thoughts. Do you think the game of soccer is inherently random and chaotic? no no well careful careful you're gonna have some people angry at you yeah
1: I don't I think it's a game of uh, you know the more experience I get and the more um, you know tr- with we, what we're trying to do here I think it's a game of patterns um, now there is there's there's spells of a game obviously a game ebbs and flows and and has that chaos in the middle and it might be but but I think what every coach is looking I mean, Louis van Gaal is the best example. I mean, there's a man who's trying to control the whole game, um, who gives his players restricted freedom. Again, that's one extreme to the other, but you have that at youth level as well. Of course, the coach who's yelling and screaming and, and trying to trying to joystick players. But I think what, what we look for is, is patterns that, we, that we've worked on, that we've established, that players can pick up on. Uh, for me, it's a game of relationships, so your for, you know it's not about you know the forward looking up and seeing the or the midfielder looking up and seeing the forwards run. Uh, he has to know exactly what the cue is. He has to seen that before. He has to know the weight of the pass. He has to know where the forward wants it. Um. So, yeah, there's there has to be a certain level of control. And again, I think that's what coaching is. I think the top coaches are 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 phenomenal at that. You know, I think. Um. You can't say it's chaos and randomised if you look at the top coaches in the world, um, becoming you know the, the Van Hals, the Marinos, the Guardiola's, the Klopp's. They are they are control freaks. Like you can't step out the Pochettinos. You can't step out of their model of play. Otherwise, you're you know you're you're benched or you're you're out the door. Uh, but there is periods of the game that you have to accept that you don't have any control over. And, and that might be through emotion or that might through at, at the college level, it might be through quality. You know, we're not we're not uh, joysticking our players because our players, um, you know, they've, we, it's a game of mistakes as well. So we're, we're just trying to minimize that, We're trying to have more control over it. And whether that's right or whether that's wrong, that's what that's what I think.
0: I, and I think it's a fair point, because usually whenever that point is brought up, you always hear, oh, well, you can't control an own goal or a bolt of lightning hitting the referee or silly things like that. But when you look at some of the te- some of the best teams in the world, and people will say, well, you can't control what the defenders do. But the whole point, some of the best teams in the world control the ball to dictate what the defenders do, to dictate what the opposition does. And that's the whole point of why they have the ball. So, I, I mean, for me, I think maybe it's, and I'm curious your thoughts, but I think Coaching at a high level is trying to make the game less random. I think the game can be random if it's a very low level and there are no patterns and the players don't understand kind of set patterns or set ideas. But the better the team gets and the better the coach is to provide those ideas, the less random, the less chaotic the game can be.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if you know, I'm just thinking when you're talking about, about teams that I would say where, where that chaos is, you know, I look and I look back, I'd be a student of the game and I'd be thinking, right, what what teams have done that? And you know, I think of obviously I, I would have been a massive Premier League fan and, and I look at Kevin Keegan's Newcastle and I look at Claudio Ranieri's Chelsea and you know, those exciting to delays, his Spurs. They didn't have any discipline, Paul. You know, they you know you're basically then saying, Oh, it's a game of that um that I'll just let the players go out and accept what happens. And that's not, I don't think that's the essence of coaching. Like I don't think coaches, because you're not, you're not changing behavior. You're just accepting that that's going to happen. You're accepting. All right. You can't take away mistakes, but you can minimize you can teach a player that that's not the right behavior and that's not the right reaction. And that's how we're going to get it back. And then all of a sudden that chaos goes from maybe five minutes to three minutes and I think that's what we're trying. You know, fatigue will always play roles. Pressure will always play roles. Again, players' abilities will always play roles in the amount of chaos. But for the most part, like I think when I watch a game and and I watch you know, like I watched uh, I watched uh, England and Bosnia on the women's set, I watched that last night, and and I thought the level of control that England had over the game was absolutely brilliant. So I'm I'm big on that there, Now I I don't think I. If soccer was just a case of letting the players go out and and have some fun, then I wouldn't get as much enjoyment out of it myself.
0: So talking about patterns, talking about how we want to make the game a little less chaotic, you have two very good books out. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about the Modern Soccer Coach and then your most recent one, the Modern Soccer Coach position-specific training and how they tie in and how the methods and ideas you've presented in those books tie into what you are doing currently at Bakersfield and with your team yeah the I mean the, the modern soccer culture is, is basically how
1: the the coaching um, has changed basically as a as a profession or as an industry or or as a business or whatever for in the past well I think the revolutions happened over the past 10 years and, and you know more recently in the past five years it's become even it's gone it's it's multiplied by 10 I think in terms of the speed of the transformation so what's changed in the game and and how coaches successful coaches today are forging ahead and how you know traditional coaches in the past have have been left behind and why they've been left behind and why certain things that worked 30 years ago don't work anymore um and and looking towards the future of the game what what type of coaching will you know will will get you to the top and what type of coaching may may not get you a job so that's what you know and and what i've tried to do with the modern soccer coach is try to look at those patterns and look at those um trends and then try to look at how to influence that on the training field with your team um and looking at exercises that incorporate um you know things of the modern game the intensity of the modern game the transitions of the modern game counter attacking so i i look at trends that that are now rear in their heads um you know maybe they're buzzwords but they're happening in, the, in in the game today and they didn't happen as frequently or with the same exposure as they happened 10 20 years ago um where i found that when i was looking for coaching books and when i was looking for coaching material in, a, in an era that there was the that you would go to books before you would go to websites uh you know, everything was pretty stagnant and everything was pretty, um, you know, you'd work with five players and 15 players would stand and watch. And, and I don't think that's how it should be done. Um, and then progressing that then to the, the position specific book is just something that I, I believe is, is going to start coming into play in a big way. And I think that again, players are, are you know, uh, we're all behavior and, and habits where we're all animals, creatures of habit. So, uh, you know the forward you know natural goal scorers and natural defenders I, I don't think exist i think they come through practice and i think you can you know we t- the development model is always talked about again it's a it's an argument on twitter how you know how do we develop players and you know i think once we get to 16 17 once these players start becoming good and i would say good is a is a is a great word to use once they become good and and technical aspects passing shooting left foot right foot control uh you know and, and the physical side then we kind of leave them alone and, and they find their own way once they get to 16 17 uh, and I, I think we can do more to influence development at a younger age or at an older age uh, and that's through position specific and, and i look at other sports and i look what basketball do i look what football does and, and i think those those there Sports are, are absolutely light years ahead of players functioning and doing that position. When a quarterback has to provide something to his team with 10 seconds to go, uh, the quarterback knows exactly what's expected of him. When a centre forward has an opportunity in the last minute of a game, it might be the first time he saw that or she saw that chance in, in three weeks and they'll fluff the chance or they'll miss the chance. And we'll say, ah, oh, they, they crumbled under pressure. But they didn't crumble under pressure. They crumbled as a result of habits, as a result of practice, not practicing enough, not getting the right type of practice, not providing the right type of pressure in that practice. Um, and, and, again, you want to talk about about randomizing. You know, well, when does the – you know, we talk about bad defending. And, and as coaches, we've all become critics. Um, but there's not enough of us that are trying to change that. In, in the older age groups, for me, um, we see growth as – I, I say in the book too much of the growth from players at the college level or the pro level is, is incidental is just by accident when it should be with a purpose. Um, and that the top teams are starting to do it. And, and I believe that, uh, we should all be working with the model as well as the players should be knowing what's expected of them in certain positions. Um, so I, you know, that's, I enjoyed researching that book and I, and I'm using that here, that model here. And, um, you know i've seen growth more growth in that there than than doing skill work or doing just general training um you know i think giving players specific work to do and and letting them know what's expected of them is only going to increase their knowledge of their position and increase their awareness and then you know eventually increase their competence in doing these key things in games
0: position specific training is extremely important but can you elaborate more on also situation specific training? So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, the majority of goals scored are inside the six yard box. It's not from a shooting line outside thirty yards out. So how often do you incorporate game specific situations into your practice when you're doing position specific training? Oh, it,
1: it has to. You know, if, if the player doesn't see the connection, then. You're probably struggling, you know, and I think that's a lot of thing with technical work. And everyone does a lot of one v one training, and everyone does a lot of you know skill work. Um, certainly in in today, and I don't have anything against it because it gets players and anything gets players practicing. You know, I'm I'm for, but when it gets to a level of top level or elite level, you're you ha- it has to mirror the game. So the cones dribbling around a set of cones and coming back to the line again, that's it would be hard for me as a player to see how I can use that um, in a game situation. But when you're trying to get a player inside that six yard box, you know, if you're a crossing team, you have to give them 50 crosses a day. And if you're a, you know, if they're through balls, they have to go on what side you have to try and mirror as a coach. Then you've got to use your imagination. You've got to make it interesting. Of course, so the player will switch off. You've got to make it relevant to their, to their position, but you've also got to make it relevant to, to the model of play that you have of the chances that are going to get created. So if it's a, you know, if it's, a, you know, look at Jamie Vardy, for example, uh, today, you know, the, the work he would be getting on the training ground would be, you know, I would say through balls and, and balls in the, you know, and diagonal passes in the left side, right side, because that's where he's finishing all the time. Um, You know, you, you wouldn't be getting him chest volley from outside the 18 because. I think 95% of his goals have been inside the, you know, from the from the penalty spot forward. So the type of forward you have, the type of play you have, the type of practice you have are all relevant, but there's no one-size-fits-all. Um, you know, I, I, it frustrates me when we say forward. He's a great centre forward, but he doesn't score enough goals. Well, he's not getting enough practice in that there, you know. <laughs> so how can you become, it's like say I can become, he's a great, I always look up. I, and maybe it's because I'm in, a, in an environment where I've got other sports offices right across, and I, I'm very, very keen to see again how does a basketball, how does a three point shooter in a basketball? It's automatic. It's t- It's it's catch shoot. And I'm not even a basketball man, you know. And it's like, how can we get that in soccer? And we don't practice it enough. And we give every player, you know, we get out in the practice field and we 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 do our training session, and every player trains the same way but then when it comes to a game we will sit after the game with our coaching staff or with our wives or with our husbands and we will complain that little johnny missed a chance and if he had a score that way to won. little johnny hasn't got exposed to that chance the only player who's getting specific work in too many teams is the goalkeeper and it it drives me mad because goalkeepers get an hour of training on top of what the rest of the team does Yet the goalkeeper touches the ball three times and little Johnny touches the ball 20 times, but little Johnny doesn't see the same pictures that he needs to see in a game, and the goalkeeper does. So it's just being more relevant and it's being more creative and it's trying to connect pictures that the players need to see in games. And if I think if we do that, then these again, like things will become instinctive and things that become quicker they become, become quicker not because of quick feet, they become quicker because of pictures that players see. So I think once you start doing that there, you're opening, uh, you're opening the same level of growth that you're going to see through, a, through mentally or through physically, but you're going to see it a lot quicker.
0: We'll end the interview with our list of quickfire questions that we normally do. So I'll just ask you a question and come up with you know the first word that comes into your head just throw it out there (laughs) and we'll we'll see what kind of answers we get so what is your favorite word as a coach intensity what is your least favorite word as a coach
1: Three words here, and they're all in one: pressure, cover, balance. <laughs> I, I can't stand that. It's enough. Pressure, cover, balance. Can you elaborate on that more? I just think it's a, it's, it, it's a coaching language. It's not player language. We all, we all go to the course, and they, they throw this at us: and pressure, cover, balance, pressure, cover, balance, and, and coaches yell it, and players don't know what it means, and it drives me mad.
0: What is the book that has had the best impact on your coaching? Wooden. A Lifetime of Reflections. What inspires you as a coach? Change. Impact. What has been your most difficult experience as a coach so far? I'd say losing losing the locker room. What has been your best experience as a coach so far? Uh, seeing, Seeing change, seeing impact, growth. What is your ultimate goal with your career? To work with the top players.
1: What advice would you give to a coach? Study uh, not only the game, study other aspects of the psychology, study business, study sports science, uh, study communication, study every area that touches coaching, not just coaching, and get yourself experience, even if it's uh, lower league, uh, youth teams, if it's a rec team, whatever it is. But try your ideas on players and, and then have a mentor, have someone that you can talk to and network if you want to move up the ladder um talk to people meet people see new new things and and get exposed to to new ideas and and there's a lot of open you know the majority of 99 percent of coaches that that i've come across um in the us and in europe they're they're all more than more than uh you know welcome to to people watching them and, and people learning from them so i think it's it's getting out there and getting exposed to that. Finally, what would you like your players to say about you? <laughs> um, yeah, that's probably changed in the past few years. I, you know, I'd like them to say that he that it, uh, that he he challenged that he that he tried to that he tried to improve me and that he tried to to get me out of my comfort zone and that
0: that I enjoyed playing for him. Excellent. Well before we let you go and this has been an awesome conversation before we let you go though can you tell everyone where they can find you and can you tell everyone where they can find your books whether it be on Amazon or through Benny and Kieran if you don't mind saying the names again and where we can buy them
1: sure sure Uh, both books are on on Amazon Um, modern soccer coach and and player uh, position specific training and then I do most of my most of my stuff and post a lot of stuff on on Twitter as well so Uh yeah Handle is uh, is just my full name, Gary Kernin.
0: Excellent. Well, look, Gary, I want to say thank you again because this has been an awesome conversation. Right. I appreciate you coming. I appreciate you coming on the show. Not a problem, Paul. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work.